The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Portfolio Manager at Intelligent Investor, and I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our Small Cap Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Alex. G'day, Nath. Hi, everyone. First question today is a company I've never heard of, so I'm hoping you have. The question is, hi, guys. I've recently come across Atomos AMS, I assume it's a ticker, and finding it quite interesting. Have you guys looked into the company and have any thoughts? Cheers, Andy. Yeah, um, I came across the company, uh, I guess, in the last year. And um, so this company manufactures hardware that is used for photography. And um, I've got a, a friend that's a pro- professional photographer. So one of the first things I did was I reached out to him and I said, have you heard of this company? Do you like it? And he had a few things to say. He, he, he wasn't raving about the product. So that was the first thing I took away. Um, and I, I did do a bit of work just to try and better understand it. And essentially what the, this company does, Atomos, is they manufacture external monitors that connect to a camera, um, which allow the user of the camera to sort of operate that from a distance and have a better user experience and so on. Now, um, one of the main things to me is that this is a product and it's not a platform. So this business needs to out innovate its competitors and, and hardware is a difficult space. So um, for me, the jury's out for this company. I, I'd want to see them um, operate on the market for a bit longer, want to see a few more results and, and get a better feel for things. So for me, a bit too early, but um, you know, they seem to be doing good things. They've got some traction. They've, um, you know, they've been growing their sales and they seem to have found a place in the market, but it's just too early to tell for me how it's going to pan out from here. Do you know, Alex, whether that's uh, the background of the companies in Australia or is it just an Australian listing for an overseas business? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I think from memory it is an Australian company with an Australian listing, so that's always more positive. Um, but don't don't quote me on that because I um, haven't spent a huge amount of time on the company. Just as a bit of a sign where we are in the cycle and just to be very wary of is there's a company called Digicel that's recently been doing, doing the rounds in Australia for a potential listing and the only real, it's a long bow to draw, but it has some Pacific Island uh, telecommunications exposure, uh, but it's more uh, a lot closer to, to America. And the thinking is that if they list in Australia, they'll be able to get a much better multiple. Now, I don't know whether the founders were selling or what, um, what other reasons they had to, to be listing, uh, but I do know uh, we've looked in my past role, looked at this company as a potential acquisition target but the fact that an overseas company is looking to list in Australia reminds me so much of uh, 2005, 2006, when there was a whole bunch of overseas companies that listed in Australia because that's uh, where they're getting the best price for selling. Mm, lots and of property the, companies at the time, yeah, wasn't it? Exactly. There was, a, there was three Japanese property trusts that listed and one, I think, from memory went broke. The other one may as well have gone broke. It was, that's dilutive when it had to raise capital. Uh, and the other one just muddled through, but I can't really remember whether people actually made a positive return on that one or not, uh, which was an ex Macquarie vehicle. So uh, just I think it's just something when you're seeing all these EPO, IPOs now and new companies hitting the boards, uh, just ask yourself, you know, as we talked about last um, last get in the game, just really have a look at who's selling uh, with these yeah. IPOs and why. Yeah, that's a great point, Nath. It, it's, it's one thing altogether when you've got, say, a, a New Zealand or Australian founder that 
decide to listen in Australia, even if they might have an international business. And it's another thing altogether when it's a, you know, a US business that picks Australia because of the way that Australians are valuing um, certain companies. So back then it might have been property companies. Now it's tech companies, you know, completely different ball games in, in those two examples there. Next one is a company that keeps coming up. So I thought, uh, given we've palmed it off because we talked about it a little while ago, we'll just quickly give our two bobs worth on it. Hi, guys. I'm loving the podcast. I'd like your views on Challenger, which has had a slew of downgrades. Do the demographic tailwinds, that is, lots of retirees and not many annuity providers, justify this stock being an above average earnings performer over the long term, or is this just another insurance company suffering from lower returns on the investment of the premiums they receive? Cheers, Aditya. Yeah, you go first, to, Alex? <laughs> yeah, I don't actually have much to say, to be honest. This is a company that I've never really spent much time on. Um, I appreciate that providing annuities was really popular in a low interest rate world and many retirees really took to their products. Um, but I find the business really complicated. It's difficult to analyze and I struggle to see where it's going to be in the long term. So I tend to shy away from that. And as a result, I don't have much and in many um, intelligent things to say about it. So I'll, I'll leave that one to you. Sorry, Nate. Yeah, I think uh, potentially there's the demand is there from people who want to essentially have a fixed income in the future they can rely on. But the problem with such low interest rates is the returns are so meagre. And because there's a bit of a black box nature about the investments that these sort of businesses undertake to generate that return, the question you're asking is if they can offer you an attractive yield, how on earth are they doing that? So you've either got to accept a very low yield or if they can actually do something better than average, then you question where they're actually getting it from. Yeah, is there don't... a certain hidden risk in the business somewhere that you're not aware of? <laughs> and I just don't think there's any free lunches out there at the moment. I just I think that's what's most frustrating about the current market is it's actually fairly priced. There's um, you know the high dividend yield, high fast growing companies are all very expensive. But you look at traditional value names and. The ones that look statistically cheap, I believe, deserves to because they're just very low quality businesses. Mm. The other aspect of Challenger too is they've got a funds management business and I actually think there's some, a lot of common sense there and, and I do occasionally have a look and see what they're investing abroad and in Australia, but there's not a, a big outstanding track record for most of their funds of outperformance, particularly recently, uh, which we can all attest to. And so it's hard to see how they're going to get a lot of market share uh, growing those funds when they are actually a fairly mature business and some of their, I think James Packer was a big investor in the business some time ago and a big customer or client and I don't think he's there anymore. I'm not sure if he's got any money left in the funds but uh, when you don't have a big white knight like that uh, and you don't have a lot of that performance or doing something really different then uh, it's really hard to get people to take their money out of other funds and put them in yours. Uh, this is my sort of guy, Lindsay, three words, thoughts on 3PL. <laughs> yes, yeah, so 3PL, um, just to give you the background, so this was an ex-intelligent investor recommendation a number of years ago. Um, it was a failed IPO, it was sold as I think the REA group of education um, and it didn't live up to expectations, the share price fell a lot and, and we got interested and at that time there were a number of ways that we could see um, how we could make money in the situation. So we thought they could raise the price of their products. They had a number of investments in some SaaS businesses that were growing quickly. And we thought that could be another area. And it didn't look like the market was ascribing much value to those. And also through just growing their products internationally because they're sold in, in the US and UK and Asia and, and parts of Latin America as well. Um, as it's panned out, um, those SaaS companies they held um, were sold for low prices, so that option value disappeared. 
um, and they've really struggled to grow their license numbers overseas. And I think that's a function of, of competition. There's lots of people that are competing with 3PL in, you know, in the mathletic space or you know, in other educational areas. The barriers to entry are really low. And so lots of people are trying. And this is another business that doesn't have a network effect. The, the strength they have in Australia, where everyone knows the product and it's even built into curriculums and so on, that has no relevance in the States or in the UK. And so this business has to rebuild everything from from scratch and, and and do so against lots of competitors. So I think without any network effects, I think it's a tough time for them. And and you know they've really struggled to get traction overseas. So for me, this is this is one that we used to hold, but we we've sold since. And and for me, I'd need to see something materially change in order to get interested again. Okay, moving on. Hi, Nathan and Alex. Thanks for the informative and straight-talking podcast. Keep up the good work. I'd like your opinions on Mac 7 technologies, code M7T, and I sign this, code ISX. Can you recommend any other industries undergoing strong technological change? Cheers, Tim. Yeah, so Mac 7 I'm more familiar with. This is, I guess, the easiest way to describe it is that it's a mini Prometicus. So it's another software business that allows hospitals to share um, diagnostic imagery between hospitals. Um, so that's obviously a value-adding service. Um, when doctors can be more efficient through better software, that's that's a good thing for everyone. Um, I think, you know, the fact that ProMedicus trades on 54 times sales, um, that, that high evaluation is starting to flow into Max 7 as people are becoming aware of the business. Now, just to give you a bit of a story of a jaded small-cap investor, uh, I met with the CEO a while back and uh, ex-CEO now actually. And my objective of the meeting was to better understand the nuts and bolts of the product and, and you know where the competitive edge of the company lies. And basically the CEO spent the whole time steering the answers of my questions away and, and, and just talking about how big the addressable market was. And so that was a really negative signal for me. And you know I, I left the meeting thinking, oh geez, this company just needs to raise capital. And it turned out that they did. Um, and yeah, it really left a sour taste in the mouth for me. So I guess now that that, that CEO is gone, I think I need to reassess the business. Um, this they, They've had some success. They've been growing the hospitals that use their products in Asia and parts of America as well. I think the price is really high though. It trades on 10 times sales and this business still has a small sales base and is, in my opinion, yet to prove itself. Um, but there, there are some good aspects to the company which which means that I'll keep checking in on the business over time. But for me, at this price, it's too difficult, but it's one to watch. In the tech boom of uh, 1999-2000, people were using the amount of eyeballs that tech or uh, internet companies could capture as their valuation yardstick to basically justify any sort of valuation. Mm. And I think TAM, T-A-M, total addressable market, I think in the next downturn, we'll look back and say that was the... The, the, the history that rhymed um, yeah. <laughs> for this peak. Uh, nothing to add on I signed this, Alex. It's actually on my list. I can't remember where I, I cropped up from, but uh, I'm going to have a look at it at some point so I can always report back. Yeah, out of the two, I'm less familiar with I sign this. I think they're in, this, in the sweet spot now because what this business does is it how, helps its customers automate requirements like know your customer. So this is obviously a, a very labor-intensive process now and you know, through digital solutions, they really streamline that process. So for businesses like Afterpay, which is probably going to have to improve in this area, there's a big um, potential there for businesses like I sign this and also for banks and, you know, any other business that needs to really verify their customer and the, 
you know, the circumstances of their customer. Um, so this business is in, in, in the sweet spot there. Um, it's competitive though. Pe- other people do this. Um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure whether these business have, you know, really strong, enduring, you know, competitive strengths, um, but they're certainly in, this, in the sweet spot there. So maybe one for more work. Do you want to quickly recommend one industry undergoing strong technological change? And I assume this is actually directed at a company that's actually going to succeed on the basis of the change. Jeez, I mean... Ordinate. Yeah, well, obviously AV, that's that's a huge change. Um, I read a great um, blog post about um, just AV in general and they were talking about how software is going to define the user experience in AV just like software did, you know, with computing hardware and, you know, the you know, Microsoft, you know, an IBM relationship back in the 80s and 90s. Um, so that's an obvious one. And it al- almost feels, you know, Mark Andreessen said software is eating the world and that, that really sort of springs to mind for me. It just seems like technology is just influencing everything at the moment. Um, the world seems like a really competitive p- place at the moment. You know, there's a lot of money sloshing around and that's going into businesses of all types. And it seems like, you know, everyone everyone's an entrepreneur and everyone's trying to build a unicorn. So... I think you're going to see lots of change in many different areas. Um, it's always hard to predict with foresight, um, but you know the world's going to change, and um, yeah, you just got to try and find something that that takes your fancy, I guess. For people who are prepared to do their own homework and are looking for stocks that certainly aren't for widows and orphans, the shift to the cloud is creating opportunities. And there's a small company I own that's, uh, in a sense, it's been a turnaround, but it's at break even at the moment. It's called Optiva. It's listed in Canada and I'll write it up on uh, the II website at some point over the next month. Um, I'm not going to cover it or follow it, but it's just an idea for because a lot of people like doing their own homework and investing in something a little bit different. It's a small company, around $220 million. Uh, so if you've got a subscription to II, you can um, read that at some point in the next month or so. But it's uh, I just think there's a really smart and, uh, let's say, effervescent, excitable CEO uh, running it, I think she works very hard. I think she's doing uh, pulling all the right strings, and basically what they do is telecom billing, and the sales pitch is for one tenth of the cost compared to, to, to traditional hardware services that normally a big tech uh, telco company would have in their own offices. Uh, you can get a ten times faster speed. So basically, it's a better mouse trap, uh, but it is a smaller company, and there are bigger companies to compete against. Uh, they've done a great job fixing this business up over the last 12 or 18 months, which was previously hanging together with chicken wire. Uh, she's doing a great, a great job trying to get out. You can actually follow uh, Danielle Royston is her name. You can follow her on Twitter. She's quite active and you can see her getting around trying to uh, just basically teach all these very slow-moving telecommunications companies that don't really want to move because the risk of moving your hardware and software for telecommunications business is extremely high. Um, just think about having tens of thousands of people on the phone and the calculation of minutes and time in the billing. Like it's um, may not be the most complicated process, but if you stuff it up, clearly it's a huge problem for the business, uh, given it's pro- almost the most important part of the business aside from the actual infrastructure. Uh, but that's one to go and have a look at uh, if you don't mind doing your own homework. Alex, you wanted to have a quick chat about Tiny Beans, which is a digital company focused on kids. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, this is an app that helps parents share baby photos and it does so in a way that is arguably better than platforms like Facebook where, you know, there's data, um, privacy issues, there's obviously lots of annoying ads that come. Um, so Tiny Beans seems to do that better. Um, 
some of the things that I like about the business is that it has traction. So there's 3 million users around the world and 1 million of those are active users who have used the platform in the last month. Um, and it's predominantly a US-based business. So most of the members are over there. Um, customers seem to like it. The, the net promoter score is really high. Retention is improving for newer customer cohorts. So that's always an encouraging sign. And um, they appear to be navigating, nav navigating that fine line between monetizing a platform and, and with advertising and, and annoying users too much. So, so that's always good to see. And, and plus, it's recently cash flow positive. Um, so it's, it's got a few interesting features there. Um, and also the question is, you know, it looks to have a scalable model. You know, they've got 3 million users now. Can they have 30 in the next, say, five years? You know, advertising revenue would go up a lot. Um, and with 28 employees, and I, and I think an, an operating model that allows them to um, not grow that materially as the business scales, I think you could see this, this model has the potential to be really good. Um, but there are a number of questions about that as well. So again, this is one where there's lots of competitors. Um, there's at least 10 competing apps that I'm aware of that have traction. Um, and many of those are much larger, have many more reviews, um, and seem to be trending in the app stores to a greater degree than Tiny Beans is. Um, but probably one of the biggest questions for me is, is how the competitive landscape will evolve. Um, so to me, this Tiny Beans seems to be driven more by virality than by network effect. So, you know, a mother might sign up and in doing so, she'll pull in her immediate family. And so, you know, you get one decision maker who pulls in, say, five or 10 users. So that's got those great viral aspects. Um, but it doesn't seem to me to have network effects. So, you know, Nathan, if you're on the platform and you're sharing your baby photos, that's of no value to me. You know, we can't interact. And, you know, the value of a, a rising user base doesn't, you know, sort of pull um, other people, external people into the platform like network effects often does. So I think, again, like we talked with some of the other businesses on the podcast today, I think the winner is probably going to be defined by, you know, who, who can develop the best features or who has the greatest marketing budget. And that lends itself itself to who has scale. So, from, yeah, there's, there's a number of interesting aspects to this business, but um, not not entirely clear on whether this will be the winning, winning one, um, whether it will be winner take all or whether a number of businesses can have success. So actually, so yeah, the jury's out for me. Um, Actually, if there's anyone on the podcast listening that uses Tiny Beans, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you because we'd love to hear what you like about the platform and, and how you use it and, and everything like that. So, Is the so idea yeah. that it's a safer version of Facebook? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, the, your, your photos of obviously your, your baby or your child, obviously very precious to you and you don't want those falling into the wrong hands. They also claim that they don't bombard you with annoying advertising. Um, you know, so you don't for put now. up your baby photo for now, of course. Yeah, there's always that question. But they don't put up your photos next to, you know, political posts or, you know, really charged content. You know, it's all just, it's really relevant to the user. So um, so they tailor that really well. So it seems to be working, but yeah, we'd love to know more about it. Okay, moving on to a payments, uh, online payments company, Pushpay. Alex, do you want to just first give a quick explanation of what the business does? Pushpay, yep. So it's an app that helps um, churchgoers um, give to the church. So it's digitized that. Previously, they passed around a hat. People put money into the hat. Now there's an app that does it. People tend to give more through the app. It streamlines the back-end process. And in the States, there's a huge number of churches and a huge amount of giving. So there's a really big opportunity for the company. So that's what Pushpay does. It's the leader in the space. It has most of the large churches. 
It's got a big revenue base. Um, it's profitable and growing quickly. So that's what it does. Now, um, recently, this week, actually, the, the founder, um, he was CEO, but he has moved to a board position. He is reducing his stake. And so that this is a decision point forced upon us where we have to reassess the position. You know, obviously, the founder selling out is a signal to us about the future of the business. And actually, uh, we didn't mention this in any podcast, but you and I spoke about this, Nath, where Pushpay upgraded their earnings. Um, they did so very early on in the year. Um, they did so after the CEO changed hands with um, the new CEO coming on board. And it just looked peculiar. And we talked about how it was, you know, there's probably a capital raising company coming. And it just so happened that, you know, there was a sell down. So that's a negative signal for us. They've obviously put out the positive earnings guidance. I mean, you know, the business is probably on track to achieve that. They Maybe they were more conservative in the past and they've used some of that by upgrading the guidance. But, you know, it just leaves a sour taste in the mouth that they've done that just to facilitate a higher exit price for the ex-CEO. So, yeah, it's, it's meant that we've had to reassess our position and, and we'll alert um, you guys about our decision there in um, future podcasts or some of our fund reports. And your BS antennae was uh, worked perfectly on that one. We discussed why they might be doing that and whether maybe there was an acquisition coming. But as it turned out, it was just a way to push up the price to get the founder out, which, as you said, uh, leave a very bit of taste in your mouth because uh, there's really, once they do stuff like that, you just wonder what else they're capable of. Yeah, it's it's funny. Small cap investing just turns you into such a jaded, skeptical person. You're just getting lied to constantly by people. But um, not saying that they lied, but it, you know, they've, it's just a signal about how they operate. So, um, so yeah, we need to be alert to such things, and we need to use those to protect ourselves. So, so yeah. So we've had a Dorothy Dix question here uh, that we've had for a little while, and I thought just over the next five or six minutes, we might just quickly run through it. So, hey, fellas, long-time listener, first-time writer. Can you guys do an in-depth episode on Porter's Five Forces? Cheer, bro. Clearly someone <laughs> that knows you, Alex. <laughs> so I thought we'd just quickly go through what the five things are and why they're important and maybe try and provide uh, an up-to-date example of them. So okay. there's really been... It's a massive topic we could talk for hours we, on this. We could, so I'm determined to get this done in six minutes. <laughs> I know it's not going to happen. So... There's really been, this has been around for a long time and there's really been no better way to assess the opportunities and threats and competitive strengths of a business. And I think it's very simple and it just works really well and gets you thinking of all types of things. So the first one is the threat of new entrants. So this is uh, barriers to entry is probably the way you hear it um, more commonly. And the idea is that the easier it is to get into an industry, the more likely it is for someone to come in and upset any good uh, financial economics in the business so the first thing I would say to think about with this is that technology is reducing these competitive barriers in a lot of industries. So I think that's one thing you need to be really careful of. Uh, another thing I point out is uh, Deere, uh, which is a US listed company, which provides all sorts of farming equipment, uh, tractors and all types of things. It's, it's loved by the people uh, who use its products. You see a lot of people wearing Deere t-shirts uh, with the green background and the yellow deer uh, sort of leaping into the air. And a lot of the things they sell can't be sold by Amazon because they're actually just enormous. They're not sort of things that fit in the post. They're very expensive to move. And so that actually creates very high uh, barriers to entry. But also really think about, I think this is one just as an average investor that doesn't get talked about much, but distribution is uh, one of the biggest barriers to entry out there. If you think of a business that's been, uh, like Deer, I guess, 
who has all these customer relationships, uh, able to move tractors and things around from manufacturing plants around the world. Just to develop that distribution network has taken decades and no one can just come in and all of a sudden take over. And that's part of what actually makes CSL and Cochlear and these healthcare businesses so formidable is it's not just the products, it's just the fact that they have all the distribution relationships. And uh, with software, uh, Mark Andreessen, who you mentioned before, Alex, said that it's actually better to have the distribution for new software rather than necessarily having the best product because you've actually got to be able to get it out in front of everyone. So mm. that's threat of new entrants. You got any comments? Yeah, I mean, the, the first um, industry that springs to mind for me is retail. You know, if, you, if you're, you know, you've got a lease and you're selling a product, someone can pop up next door to you, sell the same thing. Um, and so there's very little barriers to entry. And, and so that means competition is fierce. And, and if you're not doing a good job, you're going to struggle and you're probably going to leave the industry. So um, to the distribution point, I always think about Johnson & Johnson for some, for some reason. They, you know, they sell Band-Aids and, you know, household items and do so very well. And, you know, just to think about replicating their distribution, it just sounds so difficult to me. You know, they've got relationships with th- thousands of distributors and end customers all throughout the world. And, you know, they've, that takes a long time to build, very difficult to replicate, and that's an enduring advantage for them. So, yeah, threat of new entrants, very important. Number two is threat of substitute products or services. Uh, all yours, Alex? Yeah, so um, pretty self-explanatory. So if a, a business can be substituted for something else, that's a threat. So for some businesses, there are no other options. Um, so that, that puts the business in a very strong position. But for other businesses, there's alternatives. And that means, you know, if, if the price of the, the primary product gets too high, it means businesses may switch. Um, and so that needs to be considered when you're assessing the competitive dynamics. Um, what's a relevant company that, that this is? So Pushpay would be a, a good one where uh, once it's embedded in the churches and their software is embedded, uh, the cost of switching is quite large. Yeah, exactly right. So I guess the, the alternative is to give cash. And so that's what's been used for a long time. And they came along with a digital solution. Um, you know, that benefits the church because, you know, someone has to count up all the cash and account for that and take it to the bank and whatnot. But with digital, that's done seamlessly. So, so that was a, a, a important competitive strength for them. I thought I'd mention a controversial one, which is Afterpay, where the switching costs are actually very low in the same way that we tend to have more than one credit card and we just switch between them depending on uh, who has the best rate or maybe how much we've already used one of the existing ones. You could just swap mm. to another one, and I think it's the same with Afterpay. Now, that's not to say Afterpay is not going to continue growing revenue very quickly in the US. And uh, you know, this idea that you actually Afterpay something is powerful in itself. Uh, but there are alternatives, and I think there's going to be increasing alternatives given just how much money these sort of companies can make uh, once they can get retailers on board. So Afterpay seems to have the lead at the moment, but I don't think it's going to have its own way all the time. And it really is just a matter of clicking another button when you've got other options. Mm. Number three, bargaining power of buyers. So I've made uh, two comments here. Uh, usually individuals don't have any bargaining power. So if you're selling something to a, a broad audience, um, that tends to be very good rather than if you've only just got one or two customers. And a company that I don't know particularly well, but uh, I know Appen, which has just been an incredible stock over the last year or two in particular, it, uh, I believe it has two large customers, which I think might be Google and Facebook. So there's a lot of risk in that sense that one of those customers decides to go elsewhere. 
Mm. Yeah, I always think of the little old farmer that's selling milk to woolies and cows. You know, they've got a very powerful buyer of their product and that means that their margins get chiseled away and woolies might be always coming to them and trying to extend the trade terms and whatnot. And so it's difficult to have a great business when you have a really powerful buyer. Um, on the on the flip side of that is when you've got thousands of small customers who have no power and are unable to sort of band together and, and, and you know, form a collective and use that against you, um, that's when you're in a really strong position. So for me, Zero springs to mind. You know, they've got thousands of small businesses throughout the world that use their product. Individually, they've got no power and, you know, they've got no, you know, no ability or they, they do have an ability, but they've, um, you know, there's no great incentive for them to get together to try and chisel away at um, the, the, you know, the fees they pay to zero. Right. So they're great examples. Yeah. So for bargaining power suppliers, uh, and I'm trying, to, I try to think of companies that rely on rare sources of something, and then I know a lot of people are worried about the supply of things like lithium and cobalt into uh, the modern cars that just um, or electric vehicles. Um, mm. Any other examples, Alex? Well, Ordinate's actually a really interesting example here when you think of it from the perspective of, say, Yamaha or, or, or some audiovisual manufacturer that uses Ordinate's chips in their products. Now, right now, Ordinate is a, is a reasonably small company. Um, it's used by hundreds of, of manufacturers, um, and the chips represent a really small amount, um, really small price relative to the price of the overall product. So Ordinate's bargaining power... Um, with regards to Yamaha or other some of the other suppliers, it is quite low. But the question is, how will that evolve over time? Because we have seen, remember with IBM and Microsoft, IBM made the mistake of outsourcing the operating system for the computer that gave Microsoft its big start in life. And um, Microsoft's strength really built to the point where the, all of the user experience was defined by the operating system and the software, and they really squeezed IBM out of the picture. So... That's probably on the mind of Yamaha and Co. They, they, you know, they might be thinking, "Gee, we don't want this business to get too strong." Um, you know, and can we find ways to limit that? Um, you know, that that might be ten or twenty years away. Um, but that's that's an example of bargaining power of suppliers and how that can work against a business. And the last one is uh, competitive rivalry amongst existing firms. So, in this other way, I hear this is the intensity of competition. And the two examples where I think there's really intense competition, which is bad for profits, is I'm thinking of the UK banking sector at the moment, where mm. uh, the number of loans getting made at the moment is is very low, it's soft. And I think this is a bit of a warning for Australia too, where we've seen investment loans in particular come right off. And the, the graph actually looks quite incredible how fast that's come off. And if it just remains, if we remain in this very low interest rate environment where the pace of new loans is very slow, then you're going to see banks competing on price. And uh, my view is under that circumstance that Westpac and CBA as the biggest banks in Australia, they should be the ones that benefit, although that won't be good for, for any bank. And the other one uh, is a company that's been in the news lately is uh, overseas stocks, but uh, Christie's and Sotheby's, which are the two big auction houses. And you think they should be a duopoly because there's only two of them. They're selling art with these enormous premiums they get on them. But the problem is there's always a, almost a race to the bottom because they want to get these show pieces, like the absolute best pieces, and be associated with them so people see that you're the one selling the great big, you know, the, the best that Jeff Koons sort of piece, and that will bring more people to sell through you. But the problem is they promise these prices up front, 
Uh, and actually, the, the profits have actually been um, highly competitive for a long time. And they just never seem to be, uh, the companies never earn what they should do. And I just always imagine that if you work for one of these companies, you think you just stop being so silly and um, there's plenty of profit there for both houses, but they just seem to be, you know, it doesn't actually take a, you know, they don't have to walk into a door and promise they're going to rip everybody off uh, in a collusion sense, but just a bit of, uh, I think it's being sensible and there should be plenty of profit for both and yet it's just been that way for so long and it has never changed. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's really the the probability of a competitor acting irrationally and, and not seeking to maximize profit and just, you know, going after market share or something like that. I, I actually watched uh, the, the Kerry Packer uh, uh, dramatized series recently. Um, sorry, it was the Frank Packer one where he was competing with Rupert Murdoch. And there was a scene where uh, the, the labor unions were striking and the, the businesses weren't printing papers and um, Frank Packer decided to extend the strike in order to really hurt, hurt Rupert Murdoch and try and, you know, put him out of business because he had a weaker uh, financial position. So if, if your competitors are willing to do irrational things, um, you know, in the name of, um, you know, maximizing market share or things like that, you know, that's, that's, an, that's an industry that, that, that could be really difficult to invest in. Okay, so this has been a much more educational uh, version of Skin in the Game than normal. Uh, thanks very much for your time, Alex. Thanks, Nath. Uh, as always, we're here. Uh, please send us your emails with any questions to skininthegame at investmart.com.au and we'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.